Welcome back to the Examined Athlete Podcast. I'm Clay Reichenbach. This is our first episode of 2022, and we have an outstanding guest to kick off the year. Today, our guest is Bobby Tudor. Bobby is the founder and retired chairman of Tudor Pickering and Holt, an investment bank that he built, led, and eventually sold to Perella Weinberg Partners. He is also a dedicated and respected philanthropist, which you'll hear all about in this conversation, and he has given his time and expertise and energy to countless organizations over the years, serving on the boards of Rice University, Tulane University, the Collaborative for Children, the Carbon Neutral Coalition, the National Petroleum Council, the Houston Symphony, Good Reason Houston, and the MD Anderson Board of Visitors. Bobby also happens to be a successful collegiate basketball star, scoring over 1,000 points as a member of the Rysal basketball team in the late 70s and early 80s. And Bobby is one of the most respected and most successful investment bankers in the history of the oil and gas business. And like we always do here on The Examined Athlete, I tried very hard to put him into conversations and collect perspective on a number of topics he probably doesn't encounter in most of the interviews he sits for. And boy, did he deliver. We covered his definition of success and how it has evolved over the years. We discussed the balance required for success between pragmatic value propositions and greater purpose. We explored his goal-setting methods and how he uses goal-setting in his life. We talked his decision to trade predictability and comfort at Goldman Sachs for uncertainty and risk by starting his own business. We went through problem solving at scale and what are the core principles he starts with when trying to solve problems like climate change and energy transitioning. We spoke a lot about effective altruism and how he weighs decisions around philanthropy. We spent some time on failures and setbacks and what he learned from those setbacks. And finally, we ended on his advice for finding a career that is not only financially successful, but also fulfilling. Bobby was a joy to speak with. He is clearly wildly successful, but more importantly, he is kind, he is respectful, he's intelligent, and he's someone who spends a whole lot of time thinking about how we create a future we can all be proud of. And I really respect that about him. Bobby, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your counsel. It was an absolute joy to sit with you, a thrill for me, and I certainly appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Tudor. Well, Bobby, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I really. I enjoyed preparing for this interview very much. And one of the things I did in my preparation was to go through the Tudor Pickering and Holt website. And on the homepage, I don't even know if you're aware of this, there's this great juxtaposition between the company's vision on one side and the values on the other. And for me, it was a very clear comparison of the practical on one side with the vision and the somewhat philosophical on the other side with the values, which is... A balancing act I think all of us kind of struggle with in professional life and business. And I think it's a topic that will come up a couple of times. So that's why I'm bringing it up early. For me, it's very easy to kind of lean into philosophically compelling ideas sometimes and forget about the practical application. And it's also easy for me to go the other way and 
kind of lean into the work and forget about the greater purpose or the greater value. So my first question is, was that intentional to kind of lay out that balance that's required for success? And then secondly, whether it was intentional or not, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that contrast between higher value and purpose and pragmatic value propositions. Well, it was intentional <laughs> for, for sure. I, I wrote those down in a notebook. I still have the notebook. When I was on a plane, I, I kind of had a false start trying to buy another company and it didn't work. And then I said, well, it looks like I'm just going to start from scratch here. And I was on a plane and I thought, okay, there, there are two fundamental questions. What do I want this to be? And then the other question is, how do I want it to be? The how in my mind was at least as important as the what. Now, the what really matters, but you know, Warren Buffett's famous for saying a bad business will beat a great management team every time. So you need to have a fundamental business proposition that, that works. But I was very confident about that. That, that ground was sort of well-trod, if you will. But I was, I was more interested in the, really the, the how. The, the how being how were we going to do it? How was it going to be executed? How would it feel? How would the people be attracted to, to come to work there and why? It, it, it was two, two distinct ideas in some sense, the, the what and, and the how. And I think in, in retrospect, uh, what was special about what we built was more the how than the what. <laughs> you know, the, the what had, had been done before by, by others. We arguably did it as well as anyone has done it in the last 25 or 50 years from a kind of startup perspective. But the how part of it, we, we, we got right. And if, if you talk to people about why they decided to come to, to work at TPH and why they stayed, they would go right to the how. And, and the how is really about culture. And culture is really about how you treat people. Well, the one that jumped off the page for me, I'm paraphrasing because this is from memory, but it was don't take yourself or the company too seriously. You know, right. Take your vacation, laugh a lot, which when I think about investment banks, I don't know if I think about not taking our bank that seriously right. is in right. their value. So that jumped off the page. You know, there's nothing worse than a self-important investment banker. It, it's really obnoxious. And I very specifically did not want to be that. And so I was, uh, I was, I was focused on setting a tone that said, look, we're a business and what we're doing is important and what we're doing is relevant. But it's not important than your family. It's not more important than your children. It's not imp more important than your mother. It's not more important than being a productive member of, of society. So keep some perspective around that. And if, if you do that, you will be more approachable and you'll be more effective and you'll ultimately enjoy your work more. Absolutely. I, I'm one of those guys that you mentioned Warren Buffett that read Benjamin Graham, an intelligent investor, read Margin of Safety. I was able to get my hands on one. Yet I'm now also reading moral philosophy and reading about things like the golden mean or the golden middle that Aristotle made famous. The idea of every virtue has this balance and should be looked at as if it were on a scale. Even kindness, too much of it, an excess is a problem, too little of it is a problem. And that seems to me 
you guys captured that balance pretty well. I think that's something interesting that in the investment banking space, you had that top of mind. Yeah, it was very much top of mind for us and we, we really lived it and and our people were very much bought into it. And I think at the end of the day, our clients felt it. You know, the the how at the end of the day is as much about feeling as, as anything else, you know, how you feel about work, how you feel about your colleagues, how you feel about your clients. So f- feeling actually really matters in a, in a people-driven business like that. And, and so that, that kind of culture statement, if you will, was meant to sort of capture the feeling that we wanted. If we could really live that, we felt like we would have a, a distinguished culture. And if we had a distinguished culture, we thought we would have a better business. You know, I do believe we mostly, we mostly got that right. It worked out. Yeah, but, but you're right. You know, balance, there's, there's balance to all that. We say, make sure you take your vacations. Well, yeah, but we also say love your clients and worry about them, right? And sometimes that means your client's in a crisis in the middle of your vacation and you have to disrupt your vacation and take care of your client, right? So th- these are not meant to be sort of ultimatum statements, but they meant, they are meant to be you know, guides. Well, I think that's the beauty of the concept of that golden middle or the golden mean and why it resonated with me right off the bat. That applies to all aspects of life. You do have to balance. And if you're moving too far to the vacation side, you better check yourself. And it it doesn't just apply to virtues, it applies everywhere, which we'll get into. So let's go back a little bit. I found a number of quotes I'm going to ask you about. And I want to go back to your childhood because I found a quote from a childhood classmate of yours, I won't mention his name, but he said he knew you'd be successful no matter what you did from a young age. And so my question, Bobby, is what about you as a child would make someone say that about you? How would you have described yourself growing up? Well, I was I was serious and always sort of goal oriented and, and forward looking, if you will. Uh, so someone asked me once, well, when did you know you wanted to be an investment banker? Well, I didn't even know what an investment banker was when I graduated from Rice. You know, it wasn't until later that I even discovered it. So it's not as if I grew up thinking, well, I want to be a successful investment banker. But I did grow up thinking I wanted to be successful. I was I was ambitious. And you know, sadly, ambition as a as a sort of condition or or as a personality trait tends to be sort of vilified in some sense like it's Ambitious people want to stomp on other people or ambitious, you know, I don't think that's true at all. And I think ambition matters, particularly in a vocation like investment banking, which in some sense is, is more of an avocation that is, than it is a vocation, right? You really have to live it and breathe it to do well at it. And having a lot of ambition around that does matter. I think I've I was I've always been a leader, you know, willing to kind of speak up and grab the steering wheel if you will. I was that way as an 8-year-old and and I'm that way today. Were these qualities innate? Do you think did you roll out of bed with these qualities or did many of the traits that made you successful later on you really had to to work I and think develop. to some degree they were innate I had as a role model model my father who had very similar sort of you know leadership qualities uh, if you will so I, I do think to some degree they were innate I, I learned a lot as I as I went along 
And one of the things I'm very conscious of is that there are many, many different models of leadership and not every good leader needs to adhere to a, a short list of personality traits or, or leadership traits. There are, there are a lot of different ways to, to, be, to be a good leader. But I certainly learned a lot, you know, as, as I went along and, you know, I was, I was captain of the baseball team at eight and, and I retired as the, as the, as the head of a business at, at 62. So in between those years, I've been in a lot of leadership positions and I've observed a lot of, of really excellent leaders and I've observed some not so good leaders. And, and so I've tried to be reflective as I, as I go along and I've tried to study, study leadership and understand it. I think most importantly, I've, I've tried to be self-aware about my own strengths and weaknesses and, and where I feel like what, what comes naturally for me and, and easy versus, versus what doesn't and how to work on the what doesn't and how to make sure you get plenty of opportunity for, for the, you know, what does work well. Yeah. And I, I, what I like you're hitting on is that it takes a little of both. It takes nature, but that's just aptitude. If you want to turn it into a skill you better develop a habit around that. Yeah, and, you, right. and you mentioned teachers. You better find teachers and you better develop habits to turn that aptitude into a skill. Yeah, I will say I think a common thread for leadership is you you got to be willing to take risk and you got to have some element of courage. And that's not to say that I haven't been cowardly plenty of times because I know that I have. But at the end of the day, if you won't grab the steering wheel, <laughs> it's hard to be a leader. So, you know, something has to something has to make you you know want to grab it, and there's often risk around that. Sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's professional, but there's often risk around that. So, being willing to take that risk, uh, I think, is a really important element to leadership, and and in general, an important element to success. Well, that's a criticism I had of my young self is recognizing opportunities, but not having the conviction or the courage to back the truck up into an investment. I've read some of my distant mentors and that have kind of spoke to me and said, when you see that opportunity, you got to have the courage, which save that thought because I'm going to get to that later with you. Let's get into confidence. That's a trait I'm really interested in, how we develop it, how we retain it in difficult times. How do we cultivate it in young people? Where did you develop your confidence from and how would you rate your confidence level as you grew up into adulthood? It's been a bit of a roller coaster, I would say, in the, in the sense that I started with, I think, generally quite high levels of confidence. And, and for me, early sports success definitely had something to do with that. So I was I was kind of the best young athlete when I was eight years old. So, so from the time I was eight till the time I was, you know, 14, you know, pick, pick, pick a number. I was kind of the best athlete in my group. And I lived in a world where athletics really mattered and was, was highly valued and it mattered to my dad. So athletics were a really, really big part. And of I bet people early. were recognizing it and telling There's you. There's a lot of recognition yeah. around it and a lot of Same positive to reinforcement me. around it. And, and so with that, uh, I think, came high levels of, of confidence. And kind of think like most anything, as, as the level of competition rises and as you're pushed, there, there are times where your confidence gets chipped away at uh, or for the first time uh, you get soundly beaten or it's clear to you you're not the best player on the floor or you name it, right? There's, there's a whole range of things that can, can happen. And so 
And so then the question becomes, well, how do you handle that? How do you, how do you deal with it? Right. Does it damage you or does it inspire you? And I think generally speaking, I've been inspired by those, by those challenges and kind of pushed to do more and to take on more by them. It never, it it never knocked me down in a way that I just didn't want to get up or wouldn't get up. Is that because I was innately confident and supported and loved by my parents and or was it because I had some level of fight in me, you know, that said, no, I'm going to get up and hit you back? Probably a little of both, if you will. Well, I think sports has a lot to do with that for all of us that grew up playing sports. I had Dr. Danielle King on who studies resilience, a psychologist who studies resilience. And one of the things I said to her is for High-level achievers, forget the domain, whether it's sports or business, the effort in the face of adversity is not really the issue. I can get up and give you max effort. It's retaining confidence when you're in that space. And that kind of sounds like what you were saying. It's up and down. I can continue to give you that effort. But when I'm starting a business and I'm making 100 calls a day and getting 100 no's, how do I continue to keep my confidence? It's not making the 100 calls I'm worried about. All right. So moving forward a bit, you ended up accepting a basketball scholarship at Rice University where your name is now forever linked. Describe the sequence of events that led you to choosing Rice. Uh, Well, I grew up in in Louisiana and very much in a a sports-oriented family, an LSU family. Both my parents had gone to to LSU and my older sister was at LSU. I'm the second of five children, so a girl and then four boys. I was the oldest, oldest boy. And I was an accomplished basketball player, and I definitely wanted to play in, in college. And, and so the question became where. I was a serious student and really, really focused on getting a superior education. And so it became a matter of just kind of choosing where to go. And I was lucky. I had a lot, of, a lot of options. And my parents were great about the whole thing. There was never any pressure to do anything. They wanted me to do what I wanted to do, and they wanted me to make the decision around it. So they were completely supportive in in that regard. So I thought about a a wide range of schools and and places. I thought about going Ivy League. I also thought about going to LSU and University of Arkansas and, you know, some big state universities. I was being heavily recruited by Duke, who was in the final four my senior year in high school as was Arkansas. So two of my final five schools were in the final four of my senior year in high wow. school. Wow. Okay. Uh, and I'd really pretty much decided I was going to go to Duke, visited it, liked it. And then they signed the best player in the country at my position. I hadn't pulled the trigger yet. And a guy named Vince Taylor who was a really outstanding player, the best two guard in America my senior year in high school. And he was from Lexington, Kentucky, and he shocked everybody by going to Duke. And so Duke ceased to be an opportunity and so I started looking around and say, well, and said, well, of all the of all the other places that I could go, where's the where's the best combination of a really high end athletics and high end academics? And I decided on on Rice. And and really, kind of the turning point for me at Rice was on my visit, the the type of person that I met at Rice, the the type of athlete that was at Rice was just different from from the other places that I had looked at. They were more serious. They were more ambitious. They were more focused on their student life. Yet at the same time, they were they were very serious athletes and wanted to win and wanted to be really good. So I, I just found it to be a great combination for for me, 
and uh, and decided to go there in, in uh, 1978. I love that you point that out because we talk about the same thing. Shortly before COVID, I was in Scottsdale for a bachelor party and we were sitting around at a steakhouse around the table and a number of us pointed it out. We're like, look at this table. It's not only success in spades, but more importantly, integrity in spades. The people you meet at Rice, whether in athletics or not, are capable of wild success wherever they choose. But more importantly, it's the character you find there. And I, I grew up playing select baseball, which I don't know how much you know about that, but it basically means in Texas. I played with the guys who went to Texas and Baylor yeah, and yeah. A&M, and I got to Rice, and I was like, this is a different quality of human being. And that's clearly anecdotal, but I think Rice is really rare in that way. That's, that's certainly the way I felt about it. And I think it is rare. Uh, in some sense, sadly, it's rare. Yeah. <laughs> But that was my experience there as well. Well, you ended up – you mentioned you were very successful, highly recruited. You scored over 1,000 points at Rice. Do you feel like you met or exceeded your athletic expectations? Did you feel like your athletic career was a success? Yeah, I think on balance, on balance I did. You know, the early years were rough. We were, uh, we were not very good. This was the old Southwest Conference days, right, with, with Texas and A&M and, and Arkansas and, you know, University of Houston. I think we had nine first-round draft picks in our league and – over a course of two years. I mean, really, really kind of great talent. And we had a great player at Rice who was my class exactly, a guy named Ricky Pierce who ended up having a long pro career. But we were we were very much in, you know, build a program mode, uh, sort of the opposite of had I gone into Duke or had I gone into Arkansas, you know, programs that had been in the Final Four. I think Rice won three games the year before, the year before I got there. And so it was a long, slow, hard build and difficult. I think in, until you've been in the shoes of a college athlete, particularly one at a place like Rice, where the demands on your your time and your effort and your emotions are so, so high, it, it's hard to even imagine what that's like, frankly, until until you're in the middle of it. And I say emotions because emotions are a, are a big part of it, right? You, you don't succeed at that level of competition unless you are truly emotionally committed and sort of, you know, all in, if you will. And that, that's what it takes. And so it was it was a very hard, demanding period in my in my life. But I learned a lot as I went on and we got steadily better and I had a good successful career. I was a I was a starter and played all the time and scored a lot of points and and was an important player on what ended up being a pretty good team. We weren't a we weren't a great team, uh, but we were a pretty good team and we could play with anyone in the country and and there was a there was a great sense of satisfaction after all that given given what we built. Well, one of the things I want to talk to you about is about the importance of a team. I know you were the captain I think your last two years at Rice and learning to be a part of a team is important, again, in all aspects of life. We talk a lot on this podcast about the importance of understanding how to pull together and win together with individuals from all different backgrounds and cultures and belief systems. I'm wondering how much of your strength and strategy for bringing diverse groups of individuals together throughout your career, which happened to be from all corners of the world, you took from your time captaining basketball teams. Yeah, there's a lot. There's definitely a lot of there's a lot of overlap there for sure. A sports context, it's uh, it's a little different in, in the sense that success is very clearly measurable, right? You either win 
or you lose, <laughs> you know, and that's the that's the beauty and the tragedy of sports, at least the kind of sport. And you get feedback. Kind of, kind of sport yeah. that, that I was in. You get feedback immediately based on whether based on whether you're winning or losing. It's funny. My, my wife was a ballerina and it is similarly athletic in many, in many ways, but the feedback loop is very different, right? In, in ballet, it's about how you look doing what you're doing, right? It's an aesthetic judgment and it's an art form. Uh, in basketball, it doesn't particularly matter what your shot looks like. The question is, does the ball go in the basket or does it not go in the basket, right? So there's element of there's elements of sport that are that are quite sort of specific and different from other other team building exercises, <laughs> but there are other elements that are that are truly common. And one really important one is that look, it, it takes a lot of different instruments to make a great orchestra, right? Not everyone has to be able to do the same thing and do the same thing well. And it's it's a, it's a question of of melding things, you know, of, of melding different skill sets together. But it is very rare to have a successful sports team. And I'm, I'm speaking specifically to team sports here and less so to individual sports. If there truly isn't real kind of emotional connection and togetherness and a sense of shared purpose. And I would say that in my experience, that the same is true in, in business. The best businesses share that sort of sense of shared purpose and sense of connectivity with each other and sense of togetherness and, and sense of willing to make sacrifice for the, for the whole, if you will. So I, I learned that in sports. It's not, I wouldn't say it's, that, that concept is not limited to sports, obviously, but, but it's obvious in sports and you see it and you live with it every day. And I certainly feel like I took a lot of lessons from that yeah absolutely i mean the the idea of having the strength ahead of time to know how to pull together to how to identify complementary assets to one another put aside differences and achieve a goal i think it's a strength for sure so fast forwarding to your professional life a bit another quote i found and i'm really interested here because it's about success you said when i left college i didn't know what an investment bank was but i knew what success was and I want to get into this quote because I'm fascinated with definitions of success. I had a very strong idea of what professional success was when I was 22 also. So I'm curious what yours was. What I want to know is what was this definition at 22 of success and has that definition changed over the years? And then I'm happy to share mine after I hear yours. I think my notion of success at 22 and my notion of success today Th those two things have some things in common, but not everything in common, right? So I mentioned sort of ambition earlier. When I was 22, my notion of success was highly tied to my notion of ambition, which is to want to do things, to want to make things happen, to be the best, to be a leader. And it also meant financial success. I, w I wanted to make a lot of money. It was definitely on my agenda I subscribed uh, to Forbes in the seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I cared about that. And I think as I, as I grew up, you know, maybe as, as I made some money, in some sense that became a less important component of my view of, of success. And my view of success came to, came to involve other things, right? What was I doing for others? What was I doing for the broader community? How was I helping people who were less fortunate? How was I 
lending my expertise to other places that needed it. You know, that that became a bigger and bigger part of of kind of my take on what success was as I got older. And look, even as a young person, this my my notion of success is something that, you know, needs to be shared was always a strong notion. But I think as a, as I matured and saw more of the world and became more educated, that's an important part of it. I, th- I think my notion of exactly what success was morphed a bit. Over yeah, time. I think we were on parallel paths because I too, I always understood the value of family and friends and shared success. That was never lost on me. But professionally, I can tell you very clearly, success meant making a lot of money. It meant leading a large company. It meant being recognized for my achievements. Right. And that led for me to a very tactical way of thinking and approaching job interviews out of school, dominated mainly by what's my earning potential? How soon yeah. can I invest with the partners? Which I've told young people before, because I was asked this question at Rice a couple of months ago, that's not bad. I, it's good to be strategic and yeah. mindful about your financial success. But if it's the totality of your thinking, which probably was me, that's a dangerous game to play. And I'm not even sure if that's a great way to maximize your financial success. So if I had a chance, and the way I answered that question is if I had a chance to talk to young Clay, I probably would have said the same thing is don't lose that tactical way of thinking, but broaden your definition of success. You know, Let your heart have a seat at that table with your brain when thinking about career choices. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Let's talk about goal setting. You referred to it earlier, and I'm glad you did. Are you someone who writes down goals, sets goals? Where are you from a young age? Do you continue to set goals? Yeah, I do. I have been that guy, <laughs> even even from a from a young age. And sometimes they were, you know, they were quite simple. I didn't want to make a B. I I wanted to win the district championship. I I wanted to lower my fifty meter freestyle time. Right, you know, wh- whatever it was, I was I was focused on goals, and I would write them down and and review them and i've i've continued to continue to do that over the course of over the course of my life and i found it i found it useful are most of your goals obtainable goals or do you set some difficult to attain goals too i would say generally they're pretty attainable that's interesting cuz i i think i was raised to set my goals as high as possible and then like bust your ass to achieve them and as i've read psychology. Daniel Kahneman does a lot of writing on goal setting. And one of the things he writes is that setting difficult to obtain goals leads to a dissatisfied adulthood. But in that same chapter, he says those same goals determine your success and where you end up. So therefore, setting goals is complex. It's in the ingredients for a dissatisfied adulthood, but it's also in that mix of High you achievement, know, which I found interesting. You know, I, I read a, I forget who who said this, but I read a quote, something to the effect of success is not in the destination, success is in the journey. And I would say for me, that's definitely been true, uh, which is to say the degree to which that ambition or that goal has impacted my behavior <laughs> and what I do with myself every day and the risk that I'm willing to take, et cetera. For me, that's been the driver, actually. It's that, I hesitate to use the word process. I've never liked the word process, but maybe journey Journey is a, is a better way to think about it. I think it. it's a great way to say it, because I think that was my takeaway from thinking fast and slow in Daniel Kahneman's words, is that the problem's not the lofty goal. It's 
improper definition of success or improper placement of value, which that what you just said is quite evolved because I wouldn't say that was always me to say, well, I'm really focused on the process and my effort. Well, yeah, until the achievement doesn't come and then let's see how good you are about that. But if you can stick to that 100%, I believe. I I also feel pretty strongly that success must, at least the way I think about it, must include a moral component, right? You kind of go back to, well, Elaborate there, know, yeah. Mussolini made the trains run on time. I mean, was, was he successful? Well, yeah. I mean, if you, def- if you define it that way, I suppose so. And so, you know, you, you hear a million different sort of definitions of success. But, but for me, a successful life must include a moral component. It, it must include putting others before yourself. It must include empathy. You know, it, it must include concern. It must include a willingness to sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera. Love uh, it. Love and it. For, for me, that's partly religious training. That's partly kind of humanistic, secular training. But whatever it is, it's a big part of the way that I see the world and I see the way that I see my place in the world. And it, it definitely drives what I do and, and how I, uh, I, I think about what I've accomplished or, or not, not accomplished. And, and by the way, it can lead to some pretty harsh judgments, right? When you, when you don't feel like you've lived up to the right standard. I remember seeing a, there's one of these magazine articles that, that says, you know, what quality do you admire most in others? And my answer to that is courage. And then it says, and, and what quality do you abhor most in yourself? And my answer to that is cowardice. <laughs> you know, and, and to some degree, they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. So if you're going to talk about you know, moral standards, you better be prepared to hold yourself accountable <laughs> when you when you haven't lived up to them. That comes to self-examination and self-realization and and being thoughtful about how you how you go about your life. Yeah, I, I love it. Obviously, given the title of my podcast, I obviously believe strongly in an examined life and reflecting with others, other engaged individuals like we're doing today. Well, let's move forward to your time at Goldman Sachs. You end mm-hmm. up taking a job at Goldman Sachs, yep. a place where you'd spend about 20 years or so. And I don't know how it was for you, but when I was coming out of school, Goldman was a place where the best and the brightest ended up. It really was revered amongst finance and business majors. And assuming the environment was somewhat similar, I'm wondering what it was like coming into that environment. Was it exciting, intimidating? Were you confident and secure? How was that time? Well, you know, I mentioned before my you know, confidence levels having had roller coasters over, over the course of my career. And I went to Goldman Sachs directly out of law school. So I actually went to law school thinking I would be a Louisiana lawyer and about halfway through law school decided, mm, I don't want to be a lawyer. I'm going to redirect and ended up in the finance world and, and getting a job at Goldman Sachs. But I got it with very little finance preparation. So the day I showed up at, at 85 Broad Street, I was I was generally way behind my colleagues who had been to Wharton or Stanford Business School, or, and many of whom had worked in finance, you know, prior to going to business school. So, I didn't really appreciate it when I took the job. Certainly, when I got there and met my met my colleagues. And you're right; it, it, it truly was 
sort of the best of the best and an incredibly talented group of, of people. It was clear to me I needed to dig in and dig in in a, in a big way. And I, I will say that's a period where my sports background really helped me. It really did help me because I knew what it was like to dig in. To compete. And, and compete, right? And, and just if you have to stay longer and work harder and figure out a way, you figure out a way, <laughs> right? And I did. I also had enough confidence fundamentally in my ability to do things and to learn things that I felt if I would just dig in, I would, I would get there. I also knew that there were some things I was naturally really good at that would matter in the business. And therefore, if I could improve my weaknesses, I learned to go to my left, <laughs> right? Then ultimately, my other strengths would be sort of amplified, would you know carry the day for me. So I spent a lot of those early years learning to go to my left. And that served me well, uh, ultimately. I told my son when he was getting ready to take accounting, I said, look, I hated accounting. Okay, I hated accounting. If there's one class in college, I truly hated it was accounting. And I wasn't very good at it, but I use it every day. And it's just one of those, it's one of those life skills that even though it's not fun and even though it's not interesting, we all need to understand basic accounting. <laughs> if there was one, in some sense, if there was one class I would advise every college student in America to take, no matter your major, it would be basic accounting because to, to navigate the world, it's, it's just helpful to have that base level of knowledge. But, but that's an example of, of something I said, well, you know, I hate it. It's not fun, but I got to dig in and learn it because it's going to be relevant and I'm going to need to need to use it. So I had to, had to learn to go to my left. Yeah. I've, I've got some fun stories from Dr. Steven Zeff's class in accounting at Rice. And my mom was a CPA or or at least a controller. And I would be like, hey, and she's like, I can't even do these problems here. But anyways, would you say that learning to work on your weaknesses, that, that was probably the key takeaway from the first five, 10 years of your yeah. career, that time when you were building a foundation for it professional was. and personal life? Although I will also say that interestingly, being a successful young investment banker, it really helps if you have a fundamental level of confidence in your own ability and in your own judgment, because the nature of the business, at least the part of the investment banking business that, that I was in, was you have to project that to clients to get them to hire you and trust you. And it's a fine line, right? You, you, you can't be a know-it-all because they're going to sniff that out right away, but you also can't be timid and highly uncertain and kind of lacking in, in fundamental sort of self-confidence and drive. And so I had that. And once I learned sort of the fundamentals of the business, I was very well positioned ultimately, I, I think, to kind of project that and be a successful client-oriented person. Yeah. One of the reasons I'm so fascinated with confidence or believe in confidence is because I think it's a close cousin with belonging. And I often tell young people to remember that as long as you've put in the work, you belong in any room. And the reason I say that is that's the same thing. I mean, I was 24, 25, 26 years old sitting down with head of real estates for Fortune 500 companies. And it was that sense of confidence, not entitlement. Let me make that yeah. really clear. Yeah. But that I've put in the work and I belong in this room that I think starts with sports, but then came from habits around qualities I was good at and busting my tail to catch up when I was 
needing to go left to use your words there. And I think it's also tied to a desire to compete. What, what I find is most people who just lack confidence at the end of the day aren't really happy to be competing because they're afraid, <laughs> right? And that's something I never had, which is to say I never had fear of competing. And I, I think I learned a lot of that from sports. Perhaps some of it was innate, but I did not have a fear of competition. In fact, I really liked competition and I wanted to compete and winning mattered to me. I learned a lot of really valuable lessons in sports around that. Well, we're going to fast forward through Goldman Sachs. There's a lot I want to get to. And after 20 years, you decide to leave Goldman Sachs and form Tudor Capital. But what I want to linger on, Bobby, is the decision more Mm -hmm. than anything, because I think it's a decision few would have the courage to hit on that word to make. You have this flourishing career at one of the top investment banks in the world. I'm sure you had your challenges, but I imagine it was a comfortable, predictable path. And you decide to get off that predictable path and transition to one filled with risk and uncertainty, especially the time you did it, which we'll get into for sure. And I'm fascinated by that decision. I'm fascinated by how we all find our path in life. So how did you know that staying at Goldman was not the path you wanted to be on any longer? And what gave you the courage and confidence to replace comfort and predictability with risk and uncertainty? It was it was partly just ambition. And look, to, to get to where I got to at Goldman Sachs, you kind of had to have ambition, <laughs> which, which, which I did. It's an intensely competitive place with an incredible sort of pool of very talented, ambitious, capable people. So to, to really become a leader there and, and get into the partnership was in and of itself some measure of ambition. But it was also a place where very, very few people had really long careers. So, so to, some, to some degree, and th- that was by design. That's the way the firm was, was run. It's a little less so today, but that was very much the way it was when, when I was there. And so I would look around at colleagues who were five and 10 years ahead of me, and I'd see many of them retire at a relatively young age and then not do much, right? So they'd be... 44 years old, retired as a partner at Goldman Sachs, or 48 years old, or you name it, retired as a partner at Goldman Sachs, having made plenty of money, not really worried at all about where the next meal is going to come from. And then sort of what did they do, right? And I was always quite critical of those that didn't do much of anything. Right? And my, they had all vision and no value, well, it sounds yeah, like, or and, no purpose. My, my view is, look, you're too well-trained <laughs> to not continue to really contribute to society in a, in a meaningful way. And, and look, there, there were certainly plenty of retired partners who, who did contribute in big ways. But I was just very clear that I wasn't going to be one of those guys who finished at a young age and then play golf and coach Little League Baseball and hung out. I'm going to project on you a bit and see if you had any parallel thoughts. I've been in a space oftentimes where I'm going, I'm doing really well. I'm really successful. I'm really happy. But am I great? Am I as good as I could be? And I I don't even know if I wish that way of thinking on my daughters because I think it led to a lot of anxiety for me. But I'm curious if you had similar thoughts. Like, this is wonderful. I'm grateful for this success, but I've got more in me. Well, what what I felt sort of related to that, but not exactly that. What I felt was, look, 
Goldman Sachs was great before I got there. It was great where I, while I was there. It was going to be great after I was gone. <laughs> At the end of the day, I was a very tiny cog in a, in a really big wheel. And to some degree, that's what makes the place so impressive and, and amazing. It truly is a franchise that is, that is bigger than, than any individual part. But I had a hunkering to do something where I felt like my actions and my decisions were going to be more impactful to the relative success or failure of, of the business enterprise. I also felt that there was a really, really good commercial opportunity. There was money laying on the ground, and I just needed to bend over and pick it up. <laughs> that, that there was room and, and a need for the kind of firm that I felt like could be built. And, and so it was a market judgment in some sense. So I think the combination of, uh, of wanting to, to be a, a leader where my decisions were going to be more impactful to the relative success or failure of the enterprise was a big, was a big part of it for me. And if my timeline's correct, you leave and then we have the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. As a new small company, how did that affect Tudor Capital? What do you remember about that time? Well, you know, it, it, it turns out to have been really good fortune for us. So we, we were getting, getting yeah, yeah, TPH started sort of in February 07 and the world started to melt down, you know, within the next year or, or so. But because we were very small still and growing and kind of just getting our, our feet on the ground, we weren't in a position of needing to, you know, slash and burn costs or uh, retrench or go into the bunker or the things that were happening to all of our competitors at the time. You so, were already controlling costs. Because yeah, you were oh, yeah. We, were, yeah. We, were, we were quite small and we didn't have big G&A and it, it was not a scary period in, in that sense for us. Also, at the same time, the shale revolution was happening and that's where we had specific expertise. And so- we didn't go into the bunker in the way that our competitors at J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and you name it went into the bunker uh, where they were fundamentally worried about their institutions. And we were digging really hard into the shale revolution. Uh, look, better, better lucky than good. The shale business took off in a big way. We had gotten smarter on it than our competitors were. And also that, that decline in our competitors allowed us to hire some really, really good people away from them. And so you rolled all that together and man, we were ready to roll in 2009 and 2010 and 2011. And so we had a, a lot of success very, very quickly, I think, because of all of, all of those events having come together Absolutely. at the same time. I think we felt a little of that too in real estate. We oftentimes said we're lucky to be in Houston. We'd go to conferences where brokers from all over the country hadn't made a deal in over a year, which for us, that means they haven't taken them a paycheck in over right. a year. Right. And we right. would just keep our heads down because we were seeing deals evaporate and terms shrink and multiple shrink, yeah. but we're still doing deals. And it sounds similar to you, lucky, and probably due to what was going on with the energy business. And at some point, it appears you decided you wanted to be on a team again, and you formed a partnership with Tudor, yeah. Pickering, and Holt. Right. What led to the decision to well, join like, a partnership? Investment banking is a team. It's a team sport. Right. No, no one does anything individually, really, of, of significance in investment banking. It takes a lot of a lot of brain power, a lot of, you know, digging in hard work, support, uh, et cetera. And so I was clear that what, what I wanted to build was really, you know, was really a team. And as, as I mentioned before, I kind of I kind of knew the what I knew I knew kind of what we wanted the business, what I wanted the business to be. 
and then sort of the how. And so I then was looking for partners who I, I thought would help make it happen, both the what and the how. And the first was Dan, Dan Pickering, who had started this uh, really outstanding high-end research business. And uh, I was introduced to, to Dan by, by a client who said, you should get to know this guy because I didn't really know Dan. And it was very clear we had a, a similar view as, as to what could happen. And I was also really impressed with the, the culture he had already established in his little startup. It's called Pickering Energy Partners. And I hired Allie Pruner as my CFO. Allie had, had been a client. I knew Allie well. She's an extremely competent person. And then I hired an old colleague from Goldman who was gone somewhere else already, had been a change, had been a CFO of a company. I hired a young guy, a rice athlete named Chad Michael, who I knew and I felt he was he was young enough to, to still be kind of in the trenches, yet senior enough that he could he could really help me. And then after the, the end of the first year, I hired Maynard uh, Holt, who uh, we had also a rice guy, and we, we had worked together at Goldman. And, and uh, I felt that Maynard would bring a really specific set of kind of both both skills and enthusiasm and kind of you know cultural strength to the team, which which he definitely did. And so anyway, we built it. We built it from there very quickly. We kind of went from. Dan's business, when I bought Dan's business, he had, I think, 15 or 16 people. And, you know, within the first year, it was 30. And a year after that, it was, you know, 80. And it's 150 today. So we had a lot of growth very quickly. We got good traction in the market. And uh, I think, look, my intuition around there being a good business opportunity was definitely right. There was. Now, we were helped by the markets, as I mentioned, kind of the the shale revolution and the financial crisis, those two things together really helped us. And then uh, I think ultimately we were really rigorous about our culture and, you know, what kind of behavior we wanted to encourage and what kind of behavior we would not tolerate. We were quite rigorous about both of those things. And we built a, we built a very, very special culture. Yeah. You certainly built a great reputation. And so I, I'm going to transition with you a bit just to a number of topics that I think you're very well suited to speak on. And I think the first one, maybe we'll see, you'll find a bit odd, but I'm incredibly interested to get your thoughts in this space because it's it's a space where I wished I was better equipped as a young person and even today. And that space is around cynicism. I was in the advisory business for many years. It was very, very good to me. But the fee business can be difficult. It can be ugly at times. And speaking honestly, some of the behavior in that business made me very cynical about the business. And I really regret that. And so I'd like to know how you advise young people to navigate a career and avoid cynicism when they inevitably run into norms or practices that are either completely unethical or maybe straddling the line of unethical behavior. Well, I certainly agree with you that that cynicism is sort of the the most corrosive and destructive of character traits or behaviors. And I was very focused on trying to keep that out of our culture as much as I could. Now, that being said, in any business, there's some level of cynicism that actually can be constructive and helpful, right? It makes you skeptical. It makes you look for proof. It makes you really kind of dig in behind the numbers if you're in the finance world. So 
there, there are different sort of buckets, if you will, of cynicism. The, the bad cynicism that, that I'm talking about is the cynicism that says, well, of course, that's what he said. It's in his interest, right? He's, he's only, he's only saying it because it's in his own for, you know, commercial financial interest. The way I kind of fought that in our business was if you go back to that culture statement that you mentioned that's on our website, the first, the first sentence says, love your clients. It doesn't say your clients are important or it doesn't say treat your, it says love your clients, right? And there's a very specific message in that, which is that if you love them, you are not going to behave in a cynical way that is in your interest and not in their interest. So I've had a lot of people tell me it's weird to see the word love, kind of a business culture statement. But for me, it was it was very much by design and really, really kind of central to building the kind of culture that I wanted. And a culture I wanted did not include cynicism. What about seeing behavior maybe in competition or norms within the community that just weren't up to par. And that that's more what I'm speaking to where there were some norms in business that I just wasn't comfortable with. And like I said, I don't want to be that guy, but I also have my eyes open and go, oh, this is just how things are done. How would you advise a young person to see that? And I, I never for a second, I just decided I'm not going to sacrifice my character for a check ever. Right. And if someone else does it, that's great. But I'd like to be the person that sees that and goes, that has nothing to do with me. I'm not going to allow that to make me a cynic. Well, leadership matters, right? And if you see that behavior in your leaders, <laughs> right, then there's there's a message in that, which is that the behavior's okay. The, beha- the you know the, the the behavior is accredited, <laughs> if you will, by by the leadership of your organization. So, and I want to be clear, no, none of my leaders had that behavior, but within the market, yeah, you in see the it, brokerage market, you it, see it a lot, yeah. and 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 we saw that ultimately as a great opportunity for us, right? But because we felt like our competitive advantage, if you will, was was ultimately the how, right? Yeah, we wanted to know more about the shale business than anybody else. Yeah, we had a lot of technical ability. Yeah, we understood markets. But you know what? Almost every other firm has people like that too. So we felt like the how of what we were doing and how it was being delivered to clients would ultimately be really distinguishing because they would feel it. They would see it. They would say, wow, this is different. This is this is actually not the kind of service or behavior that I'm custom I'm accustomed to seeing in investment banking. And you know what? That makes me want to work with these guys. And I think if you talk to kind of the market and their and our clients, people would say, you know, TPH, it's a bit of a different place. It doesn't, it doesn't operate the way the rest of the market operates. And in some sense, that that sounds arrogant, and it, it's not meant to be. But but it what it, what it's meant to reflect is that there is a very specific, there are cultural norms there, 
that are really, really embedded and strong and enforced. <laughs> and that ultimately gets reflected in the culture of the place. It gets reflected in the kind of people who go there. It gets reflected in the service they give to their clients. It gets reflected in how their clients feel about them, you know, et cetera. And I really, I really do believe that to have been the case for us. Let's move over to another subject that I'm passionate about and I know you're passionate about, and that's problem solving. And I understand now you're, you're transitioning into quote unquote retirement into problem solving at a scale that perhaps we've never seen before with the goals around energy transitioning. This is clearly one of my generation's most challenging problems. I read recently that to get to net zero greenhouse emissions by 2050, it's $3.5 trillion a year in capital spending, which that number means very little to me and probably not my listeners. But to put that in context, that's one half, I believe, of the world's corporate profits. You probably know better than me. But beyond the dollar amount, I'm not really interested in that or interested in you speaking about that unless you want to. It's just complex in ways that few understand. And it's a problem that's not going to be solved by one country, much less one party. So don't feel the need to speak specifically about energy transitioning unless you want to. But I'd like to know what are the core principles you start with when tackling generational problems of scale like that? The first thing you have to do is admit there's a problem. <laughs> then you humility, have, maybe. Is yeah, that, and yeah. The, and the, yeah, and that that involves that involves humility. It involves recognizing that there are a lot of things that you don't know and don't understand. I told someone recently, you know, one of the funny things about getting older and more experienced is, is not so much that you get just smarter and smarter and smarter about a problem. It's that you actually understand better how little you know, <laughs> right? And, and I, I think this energy transition problem is one that very much kind of lends itself to, to that to that maxim because it's incredibly complex. It's global. It involves science and involves geopolitics and it involves economics and it involves financial modeling on a, on a scale that is almost never been done before. You know, it's, it's just a crazy, crazy, crazy complex problem and it has very high stakes and how the problem is approached also impacts people's daily lives today, right? It's not an abstract thing. It's a, it's a very sort of current thing. And so uh, when you think about solving the problem like that, after you, after you admit there's a problem, then you really need to diagnose the elements of the problem and figure out what's fixable and you know what's not. You need to be really, really humble, <laughs> Uh, about taking input and advice. Anyone who kind of stands up right now around this problem with a huge degree of certainty of exactly what the problem is and exactly what has to be done, I'm very skeptical of because I know enough to know that the complexity of it is is sort of mind-boggling, if you will. But that also makes it that also makes it challenging, you know? And one of the really cool things about the energy industry is that they're accustomed to taking on big, big challenges that are seemingly unsolvable. And it takes a lot of kind of risk taking and 
intellectual gymnastics and otherwise to, to solve the problems. And so I'm, I'm confident that this is a problem that we can address, but it's a hard one. And a, a lot of the right answers are clearly not known yet. There, there's no doubt about it. So I'm just very happy to, to kind of throw myself in the middle of that and say, okay, I have some level of expertise and experience that's relevant. I think I have something to, to add to this. And I care a lot about it, both in the context of what it means for the world, but also in the context of what it means for greater Houston, Texas, the city where uh, I've raised my family. So for a lot of reasons, it's just a, it's a fire I want to run towards instead of away from. I think there's a lesson to be learned by the first pillar you start with is intellectual humility, because I think that's a lesson we can take for so many of these generational problems. And I'm incredibly interested in how we find intelligent dialogue and progress in the most challenging spaces. That's one of the reasons I started this podcast and a reoccurring theme that has come up when I discuss these generational problems with people like yourself is the idea that to build a future we want, we're going to have to do it together. We can't do it divided. We're going to have to have some humility. We're going to have to have some critical thinking and rationality, a ton of hard work. But the biggest obstacle seems to be that we've got to do it together. Let's move over to philanthropy for a bit because at least in my mind, and I think many Rice grads, you're known for as much as you're giving as your success. I mean, that's where I first came to know you. So I assume you've done quite a bit of thinking around effective ways to give and worthy causes. And I've done quite a bit of thinking in this space on a much smaller scale. So I'm interested to get your feedback. You know, Each time I receive a request for a donation from our alma mater, I have this internal struggle on whether I should add to a billion dollar endowment or give to someone I know that's struggling to make ends meet personally. Right. And so I've studied things like effective altruism, and I don't know how much time you've spent on that, but I would like to know, how do you think about the effectiveness of your giving, and how do you weigh decisions on where to give and who to give to? Well, there, there are a few different questions in there. Let, let, me take, let me take the first one around how do we make decisions around who and you know, where, where to give. I would say it's, it's highly driven just by our, our interests. And sort of the things that we, you know, care about the most. In some cases, they they touch us individually quite directly. In other cases, you know, they don't. So, for example, we're very committed to the arts. And Phoebe and I, it's a big part of our life. Our parents were both musicians. And we feel like our lives in Houston have been greatly enhanced by having access for us and our children and our community to really high quality art of all sorts. We think uh, art has transformative power. We think it makes the world a better place. We think it makes for more empathetic human beings and a better society. So that's an area where we have interests, so we give and, and are personally involved. We also feel like we have a duty to directly help the least advantaged amongst us. That's somewhat uh, informed by our religious beliefs, I would say, and and just somewhat informed by our view of 
the duty of citizens, <laughs> really. We've always been big supporter of social services agencies, some of which are dealing with very kind of long-term intractable issues, and some of which are simply trying to make sure that someone has a roof over their head and enough food to eat that day. And so I've never, I've never bought into this notion that my philanthropy needs to be focused on solving long-term issues. Well, you know, what about the person who doesn't have enough to eat that day, <laughs> right? And so we've always felt that being involved with and, and giving to social services agencies was just something we needed to do and, and should do. Higher education is a particular interest. And we've been quite involved there, especially at especially at Rice, but also at our other alma maters. I went to graduate school at Tulane, and Phoebe was an undergraduate at UVA, and then a graduate student at Columbia. So we've been involved at all those uh, places, but particularly at Rice, where, given that it's in Houston, we live here, and I've been so involved there. And w- once again, we think <laughs> American higher education is one of the great sort of jewels in America's crown. There's no place in the world that does it as well as as America does it. W- within America, these institutions need our need our support and within our community, they they need our support. And I have a I have a very, you know, at this point just because I've been so involved for so long, I have a very comprehensive sort of understanding of what what happens in big research universities and the lives that are touched by them and transformed by them. And I also have a real sense of, of duty around giving back. You know, it, it, it was hugely, hugely influential to my life. I didn't pay a penny to go to Rice. I was a scholarship athlete and it impacted my life immensely. And so we're very supportive of higher education and, and involved. We're, we're supportive of education more, more broadly and have been really involved in public education in, in Houston in particular. And we, we feel like that's another very, very complex, difficult problem with a million different facets to it. But if, if we don't have a public education system that fundamentally works, we will not have a society that fundamentally works. And, and so we believe that, that some of our money and, and time ought to be dedicated to that. I would say finally, you know, you, you're heal people. People complain and say, oh, they're calling me about supporting the Natural Science Museum. And that's just not my thing. And, you know, I'm going to let somebody else do that. It's annoying to be asked for money all the time for all of these things. And and Phoebe and I just don't view it that way. Our, our, our view is, look, it takes a community here of people with, you know, a wide sort of scope and, and set of priorities and interest. And we need to support each other. And yeah, you know, we're not the leaders at the Museum of Natural Science or, or Meals on Wheels, f- for that matter. But that doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't try to support those who, who, those who are. So we have a very sort of teamwork-oriented approach towards, towards all this. And it's a big part of our life. We spend a lot of a lot of our energy around it. But we also feel like we both have a duty to do that. And we also have an opportunity to make things better. Yeah, it sounds like you believe in supporting all types of causes and all types yeah. of benefactors. And one of the things when I mentioned that the effective altruism movement 
has resonated with me in many ways. But when I think critically about it, I can also be critical of it. Like, how do you compare saving a life today versus a breakthrough at a university that may save millions of lives? And I've also been critical of those in the effective altruism movement that want to criticize a large gift or the benefactor of that gift. I don't see as how that's beneficial in any way to tell Mark Zuckerberg that $50 million you gave to the hospital is is not good enough. So do you think these discussions around effective giving are even worthy? Is it is weighing causes and beneficiaries even a good practice? Well, I think what I would say is it's a healthy thing for bright lights to be shown on not-for-profits and for pressure to be applied to make sure that they are, in fact, effectively executing their mission. So to the degree this whole effective altruism conversation has that as a component, I actually think that's that's useful. Much in the same way that Shareholders should apply pressure on management teams, you know, to to do what they to do what they say they're going to do. On the other hand, there is a difference in my mind between a gift and a deal. I think of philanthropy as a gift, not as a deal, right? Not not as something that I will only give to you, to your cause, if you do X, Y, and Z. Now, implicitly in almost every philanthropy, there is some sort of kind of unsaid contract uh, like that. But I think too too often, too often it tilts towards it being a deal. And that's just not, that's just not philanthropy to me. That's a, that's a business transaction. (laughs) And at its heart, those two things for me are different things. Absolutely. Well, thanks for your thoughts there. Two more questions, Bobby, and then I'll let you get out of here. This has been outstanding. This question may not work because as I look through your bio, it reads as if you jumped from victory to victory to victory throughout your life. However, I'm curious if there are any particular failures or setbacks that stand out and what you may have learned from those. Look, I to to some meaningful degree, I've I've lived a very charmed existence, right? I was I was born in relative wealth, into relative wealth, to parents who loved me and wanted me, and I was white and healthy, <laughs> right? And so, in America, and in America, right? I mean, I was starting from about as about as good a spot as you can start from. And so I've tried to be, you know, mindful of, of that and really appreciative of it, number one, but also empathetic and understanding and supportive of people who didn't start with that. That, that being said, my father-in-law used to say, you never know what goes on behind closed doors, right? A- everyone in this world has their own challenges. And heartbreak and disappointment and that crosses all ethnic lines and and economic lines and uh, geographic lines. I was diagnosed with cancer in 2016 and my dad my dad had died of prostate cancer so I'd always been very sort of aware and and my doctor had always said look you are probably going to get prostate cancer so you need to watch it so anyway 
I did get it at the same age that my dad got it. And I would say, you know, for the first time, your sort of mortality comes into question. It really does make you think and say, okay, hit the pause button here. Am I living the life I should be living that I, I want to be living? Am I paying attention to the things that matter most? Am I frittering away my time? Am I really prioritizing things the way that I should? And around that same time, I also was was going through a very difficult business period. And so, and, and so I would say, yeah, that there was a there was a, a period there where I had a series of just sort of pressures and concerns and worries that was unique relative to the rest of my existence. I never had to worry about where the next meal was coming from or whether I could pay my rent or you name it. And for the first time, really, I had those those kinds of significant concerns. And I learned, you know, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about it. I learned a lot about myself. Everyone says you really learn about yourself when and about others, for that matter, when things go south, <laughs> as, as opposed to when everything is OK. And, and and because I on the whole, my life has been one of kind of privilege and success. Having a period like that was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a jaw dropper. But I definitely uh, I definitely learned a lot. I'm better for it on the back end of it. I have a degree of, uh, I think, empathy for for others that maybe I, I didn't before. And, you know, kind of back back to sports, right? You you learn you can learn things when you're challenged if you're reflective. <laughs> right now. A lot of people aren't reflective, and I think it's a I think it's a shame. I think the you know liberal arts education is much vilified uh, these days, but I'm a big believer in the power of liberal arts education, primarily because it tends to force self-reflection, and that makes for ultimately better human beings and better citizens, uh, better contributors to the world. And, you know, better parents and better children and better siblings and better friends. And so I, I think, you know, most everyone in the world has gone through difficult periods like that. I, I certainly did. And hopefully I'm, I'm, you know, the better for it. Well, I certainly appreciate you sharing that. And just to be clear, you're in remission now as things, yeah, things yeah. are good. Yep. Things are good. Things, things are good. I'm, I'm perfectly healthy and we got it early and I got great care. Great. Uh, very fortunate to live in Houston, Texas. And, be treated at Indy Anderson. Absolutely. Well, last question for you. What would be your advice for young people that want to not only achieve financial success, but find a fulfilling and satisfying career? I would say on the career front, it is really important that you truly enjoy the substance of what you're doing. For it to be sustainable over a long period of time, you need to enjoy the substance of it, not the idea of it, not the trappings of it, but the substance of it. And I tell people I feel very fortunate that I've been an investment banker for whatever the number is, 37 years or something like that. And I can count on one hand the number of days I wanted to pull the covers up over my head and say, oh, my God, do I really have to do this? 
I, I just never felt that way about my job. I was interested in my clients. I was interested in the energy business. I was interested in in the competition of it and winning. I was interested in it in the people that I was I was working with. And so that was the substance of the job. And I really did love the substance of the job. So one piece of advice is find something where the substance really screams at you, right? Because you're more likely to be good at it. And if you're good at it, you're more likely to have success around it, financial and otherwise. So that would be one piece of advice. The other piece of advice would would be be self-reflective. Think about what you're good at and what you're not good at and try to get better at the stuff that you're not good at and try to maximize the number of times that you get exposed to what you are good at. <laughs> and that's just that's part of knowing yourself and understanding yourself and, and being appropriately reflective, if you will. And I think the, the third thing that I would say is don't take yourself or your job too seriously. You may be a brain surgeon, right? And, and what you're doing is obviously incredibly important. But at the end of the day, you're not God. You're a professional person doing a job and you want to you want to do the best that you can do. But it's not important. It's not more important than your relationship with your family. It's not more important than your own health. It's not more important necessarily than the overall health of your community, uh, for example, or, or society more broadly. So I'm a big believer in the importance of perspective and the sort of the balance that that gives to to one's life because i think it makes it more likely that if you you have that balanced perspective you're going to be more empathetic you're going to be kinder to others you're going to be more inclined to help and to sacrifice your own interest and your own needs for for others and you're ultimately in all likelihood going to be more successful i really encourage people to keep some perspective. Beautifully said, Bobby. I, this has been a real thrill for me. It's been outstanding. It's not lost on me how fortunate I am to get to sit down with people like yourself. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. It's great fun, and, and thank you for doing this. Clay. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing uh, I'd rather be doing, so yeah, thank you so much. It's a, it's a great idea, and I hope people are getting a lot from it. 